Hello everyone, my name is Lauren. And I'm Cooper. And we're the Thrive Initiative. We host meaningful discussions with professionals in the fields of mental health and neuroscience. We hope to spark conversations surrounding mental health, provide teenagers with resources and self-care tools, and inspire a generation of mental health advocates. Welcome to our podcast. Just a quick reminder that the information included in this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for professional care. If you feel that you need more assistance or support, please check out the thriveinitiative.org for resources and referrals. Hello, everyone. Today, we are excited to introduce Whitney Boole, a psychotherapist with a master's in clinical psychology, a bachelor's in communication studies, and a certification in EMDR. Whitney works with clients experiencing depression, anxiety, relationship struggles, infidelity, parenting, trauma, addiction, and grief and loss. She's also the author of You Got This, Healing Through Divorce. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're looking forward to our conversation with you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So just so our listeners are on the same page as us, what is trauma and who can it impact? Yeah, so trauma, trauma is an interesting word. You know, I think most people think of trauma as big T trauma and big T trauma is the kind of trauma that everybody knows is trauma. Um, a victim of a mass shooting, abuse, neglect, um, the death of somebody close to us. But the small T traumas also impact us. And small T traumas can be something that to one person might not be impactful at all. And to another person, they really hit hard. So a small T trauma might be something a friend said to you at school that was really painful or an instance of bullying or something a teacher or a parent did or said. Um, and they're, they tend to sort of link together the big T traumas and the small T traumas. And, you know, to some extent, we all have some degree of trauma. And the issue is, is how much it impacts us and Im- impacts our choices and our way of living. Mm-hmm. And in terms of impact, how can trauma affect people? What kind of emotions and physical manifestations come up yeah. for people working through trauma? That's a really good question. And the thing about, there's this myth about, um, about the central nervous system, which is that it's all up here in our brain. And the truth is, is that the central nervous system runs through every inch of your body which means that psychological symptoms are absolutely going to have physical symptoms um, and often do. And that doesn't mean it's all in your head and you're crazy or you're making it up. It's all tied together. Our central nervous system ties together our entire body. So a a lot of times people, um, so when you, when you experience something traumatic, the part of your brain that is rational and reasoning, it goes offline. That prefrontal cortex goes offline completely. You still store the memory of the trauma, but it gets stored in images, sensations in the body, feelings, and negative cognitions, which are things that we might intellectually know aren't true, but that feel true. Things like, I'm not safe. I'm not good enough. Um, I can't protect myself. I have two pages of these negative cognitions. Uh, So a lot of times when our trauma is being triggered, right? Like I might be in a situation, all of a sudden I get hit with 
a rush of sensations in my body, feelings, um, maybe some strange images, or, you know, I get the sensation of like, I'm just not good enough. And it feels disproportionate to what's happening in the present, but it's because our trauma is being triggered, right? So we don't have the benefit of saying, oh, well, this is because when I was eight years old, because that part of the brain went offline. The prefrontal cortex is not what encoded the memory. So we don't really know what it's about and we can feel triggered and overwhelmed and really struggle as a result and not understand why. And that's a good indication that we're having a trauma reaction. Now going into PTSD, I know, a lot of people think that if you have trauma, you automatically, or if you've undergone trauma, you've already, you automatically have PTSD when I don't know if that's necessarily the case. So just going into the basics, what is PTSD? Um, does everyone experience it? And then what are the symptoms that can kind of signify that you actually do have PTSD? Well, that's another good question. Um, so PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. And the truth is, is that if something traumatic happens to you, you are absolutely going to have a reaction to it in the, in the short term. Right. And for some people, when something traumatic happens, their reaction might seem strange, right? Um, when trauma happens, we don't necessarily behave in the ways that, uh, people expect, um, you know, people laugh as a defense mechanism when something really painful is happening and people might think, oh, well, it's because they don't care. No, it's just their way of defending against the pain of the trauma. So the pain of the trauma is different than PTSD, right? You are, if you experience something traumatic, you're probably going to feel pain around it. And that's, that's normal and actually healthy and okay to feel pain sometimes, right? Where it becomes a problem is with PTSD, our central nervous system doesn't uh, regulate properly, right? We we start to become hypervigilant, right? All of a sudden we're startling all the time. Um, We feel on edge. We might have flashbacks of things of the trauma that happened um, or subsequent traumas. Traumas um, that happen after or before, right? Um, we, other symptoms of PTSD is anxiety, feeling anxious or depressed. Sometimes that's rooted in PTSD and rooted in, in trauma. Um, nightmares, a sense of feeling sort of foggy headed. You know, it's, it's interesting. A lot of times things get misdiagnosed that are really rooted in trauma, I think. Um, anxiety and depression is often rooted in trauma and is a PTSD symptom where it gets blurry is, um, you know, what qualifies as PTSD, right? So even, even if I have a symptom, you know, that that's related to my trauma, it might not be full-blown PTSD. I might not be having flashbacks and nightmares and be hypervigilant and all of that, but it still might be tied to my trauma. Right. Um, so just because you know, trauma is an interesting thing and there are a lot of different ways of looking at it, right? There's, there's severe PTSD, which, you know, people have flashbacks and they, they dissociate. Dissociate is when it almost feels like you leave your body and you're not even there anymore. Um, it can really impact functioning in a significant way. And then there's people who have symptoms of trauma where it is rooted you know, anxiety, depression, it is rooted in their trauma, but it's not full-blown PTSD. And then there's people with complex trauma where, 
you know, their, their small T trauma and their big T trauma has reinforced these symptoms and they, they struggle with depression and anxiety as a result of all of the trauma in their life. It's not necessarily full-blown PTSD. It's, it's complex trauma, which is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. I think that's great that you said that. I think, you know, with a trauma, big T or a little T, as you say, there's going to be some sort of reaction. Um, and, I think it's highly individual how someone's going to react, whether that is, you know, with a full-blown kind of PTSD as you see it in the DSM, you know, flashbacks, nightmares, or it could kind of manifest in completely different ways. Like some people use, like you said, humor to cope. Um, and oftentimes family traumas, I, I mean, that's, it's more personal to me, like a family trauma, but how can those different reactions kind of clash with each other, if that makes sense? Yeah. Coping in different ways. Right. And, and I, and that happens so often where somebody will think, oh, look, they're not even, you know, they don't even care that so-and-so died or whatever happened. They're just watching movies all day long. Right. And really what that's about is, is checking out. Right. And not wanting to, to deal with the pain. And we all, you know, we need breaks from it. So people do have different reactions to trauma and that's normal and it's healthy. Um, and in a family, you know, it's, it is hard because everybody's going to have a different reaction to what happened. And the thing that we really need to watch out for, it's okay to escape, right? Like watching movies or binge watching a TV show because you, you don't want to think about what's happened. That's normal, right? It's not like that's going to make it go away and you have to be careful that you don't keep it stuffed down. But what I think, especially teenagers need to really be careful of is, trying to escape into, um, drugs or alcohol or sex or whatever it is, because those give you a dopamine hit and they give you a sense of escape, but you know, they, they just create additional problems, um, that manifest in other ways. Yeah. Um, I've, I've, that kind of sparked another question for me. What would you, how would you characterize or just expand upon the idea of trauma and its ties to addiction? Yeah. So there's, there's something called the ACEs test, which is the, um, adverse childhood experience inventory. I think I can't remember exactly what it stands for, but something like that. And it actually looks at, uh, trauma and evaluates the likelihood that you're going to struggle with mental health and addiction and things like that. And, and the truth is, is that, um, it, it you know, when, trauma does often, um, it's often at the core of addiction, not always, definitely not always, but a lot of times it evolves from a not wanting to deal with, um, what's happening with, with wanting to check out from painful experiences. So, you know, if I want to check out from painful experiences, I have to keep using, keep using, keep using, keep using. Right. And mm -hmm um, that can often evolve into addiction. And I had a question that was kind of going back to what you were talking about earlier in terms of decision-making and irrational thinking. Um, when someone does experience trauma, how, I guess, to what extent, or for how long does that, you know, irrational decision-making that, you know, um, shut off of the frontal cortex kind of last, wow. is it something that it's just like momentarily or is it something or momentary or is it something that kind of goes on for a long period of that's time? That's a really, that's a really good question, especially for your age group, right? Because 
Um, there are two pieces of this. One is that when you have a trauma reaction, it's it's not long-term, right? Um, your prefrontal cortex will come back on when you start to feel regulated and grounded. So it's not like, you know, it's, it's something that happens in the moment. And sometimes we have a trauma reaction. Um, it's that fight, flight, or freeze amygdala response. But you know, this, this is why teenagers do stupid things sometimes, not you guys, I'm sure. But, um, the, the thing is, is that prefrontal cortex in your adolescent years, which actually lasts until your mid twenties, your prefrontal cortex gets a complete and total remodel, which means that you're more impulsive, you're more emotional, um, you're more prone to making questionable decisions, uh, which I'm sure that you have seen in some of your peers. Um, and you hear stories of things that teenagers do, but it's because that prefrontal cortex isn't, isn't quite online fully. So, um, yeah, so it does come back online, but you know, it's, it's a little bit more of a nuanced question for your age group, right? Because, um, the prefrontal cortex is not the strongest piece of the teenage brain. Yeah. Um, and kind of going back to earlier, I wanted to circle back around to memories and trauma because oftentimes people's memories of their trauma don't seem super clear. Um, and are often, you know, they call them flashbulb memories. You're kind of just getting a snapshot moment, but yeah, even in this lack of a clear memory, you still feel the feelings and you have like a very visceral emotional reaction when you're triggered. And this can often feel confusing and conflicting. Like how can something that I don't have a clear memory of profoundly affect us? So why are trauma memories not as clear? And how can people reconcile this frustration? The answer is the prefrontal cortex is Mm -hmm. that your rational reasoning part of the brain didn't encode the memory. Right. But the other piece is the the dissociation piece. Right. Um, I found, I had this really cool experience where I found this journal that I wrote when I was, you know, I don't know, maybe 12 years old. And I talked about all this stuff that happened to me that was pretty traumatic. And I don't remember any of it. It's like, it never happened to me. Right. And part of that is dissociation and dissociation is when we, we almost leave our bodies in a way. And it's a way of our, like, it's our brain's way of protecting ourselves. Um, so a lot of times when people come from really abusive or neglectful homes where there's a lot of abuse, they don't have a lot of memories. And the reason is that they dissociate it. Right. And it's a way to protect and survive. The problem with it is that you know, it also keeps us from being able to be present and enjoy. And it's something that we have to deal with, right? Because you can't associate through all of life. Um, but um, yeah, it is frustrating and also self-protective, right? There are certain things that happen sometimes that are extremely painful and our brain, our brain tries to protect us from it. Right. Even if you don't consciously know it's there, it's still there. Um even if you don't have a clear memory of it, I think it's yeah. affects us. Right. Like it gets encoded somehow, right? It's mm-hmm. a part of you. You know, so oftentimes clients will come in and they'll talk about, you know, the the choices that they've made or things that they they don't understand that they do. But if you look at their trauma, it makes perfect sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if um I'm just gonna throw something crazy, like random out there. But if, you know, if, if your experience of being in a car is seeing somebody hurt, of course, you're going to feel anxiety getting into a car. Right. 
um, the, that is a more linear example than I think is typical, but it encodes the, the choices that we make, how we show up in relationships. You know, if we grew up in a home where, you know, our, our primary caretakers don't feel stable or safe, then in our subsequent relationships, we're not going to feel stable and safe. And that makes sense, right? Like it makes mm -hmm. sense. It's based on what we learn from our trauma. However, that trauma is just a slice of the world. Uh, and we have to be careful that we don't make so much meaning out of just that traumatic experience when there's so much more out there. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I wanted to, um, get into re-experiencing trauma and how that can harm one's healing process and, um, how this kind of ties into EMDR and how EMDR can be used as a tool in trauma work? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, for a long time, therapists, well-meaning therapists, caring therapists had clients talk about all the terrible things that happened to them and ask them for gory details. And the truth is, is that it was re-traumatizing. And, and sometimes therapists still do that. Um, I, I think most therapists are at least um, trauma-informed enough to know that that's not beneficial, but we can re-traumatize it. When you go over a trauma over and over and over again, I mean, it, I'm not telling you you can't share about a trauma. For sure, if it's already up and it's in your circuitry and you're thinking about it, talking about it is freeing sometimes, right? So I'm not saying that you can never talk about the traumatic things that happen to you. It will re-traumatize you. It's not what I'm saying at all. And at the same time, going over the gory details of horrible things that happen, it deepens the neural pathways to that trauma. So it can be counterintuitive um, and it's not always good. Um, EMDR, which stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, is a way of treating trauma that does not re-traumatize. I can, I, I, in fact, I have, I, you know, years ago I had a client, they didn't even want to tell me they had some habit that they did, but they didn't want me to know what it was. Right. We did EMDR. She never told me what it was. I, she actually did when it was, when it was over, right. After I had finished doing the EMDR and it was actually, it was sort of a letdown, right? Like I thought it was going to be something so extreme and it was not. Um, but the, the point is, is that, you know, with EMDR, it's about treating the negative cognitions, sensations, images, emotions associated with the trauma it's not about reliving the trauma and, um, and it's really effective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's really cool that you can, like you said, you can work through a trauma or I guess in the situation you're talking about, about a habit without ever actually having to talk about it or verbalize it. Um, mm. and you know, oftentimes just talking about it and going over the details over and over again, like you said, you're not going to get anywhere with that. Yeah. So it's fascinating to think about that. Um, I, I guess I don't really know. This is kind of an offshoot question, but um, when did EMDR kind of become more integrated into your practice and when did that kind of become a tool yeah. that therapists started using? Well, EMDR has been around for, I think like 30 years. Um, it's been around a long time and I... Uh, when I was in grad school, 
just right off the bat, I learning about trauma, I thought, you know, I want to be able to help people and know that I've got something in my toolbox that is going to help people. So I actually got trained in EMDR while I was in grad school. Um, it's one of the very first things I did. And I'm so glad that I did because, you know, it's not something I do with all of my clients. Um, because it's not always appropriate. And because really at the core, you know, that all the research shows that the most effective part of therapy is the relationship that you have with your client. Right. Mm -hmm. And so whatever modality I use, I, I do believe that it's the relationship that's the most healing. And yet I have seen incredible transformation with clients who, who've taken advantage of the EMDR and use the EMDR. And so for me, it's been, I had a, this is a second career for me. I, but it's been about 10 years that I've been, um, I've been a therapist and it's been about 10 years that I've been using EMDR again, not with all my clients, but with, with a fair amount. And, um, and it's, um, it's really, it's incredibly effective mm -hmm. or something like that. And then I guess on the flip side, what are some healthy coping mechanisms that you encourage? Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, this is the, <laughs> this is it, isn't it? Right. I mean, yep, um, yeah. And social media and all of it. I think the most, especially through this pandemic, I think, and, and it'll be interesting to see how we un unravel that. I think that a lot of people get lost in their phones and it's mm -hmm. this sort of, um, you know, it's an interesting thing before the pandemic, we limited screen time. Right. And then during the pandemic, that's the only way you can see your friends. So, you know, have at it. Um, but I, yeah, it's, it, we get lost in these sort of, um, fake realms, uh, and social media dynamics that are not always healthy, uh, take us down a lot of roads, but basically they, they kidnap our brains, right? Um, mm -hmm. So that we don't have to think about the things that we don't want to think about. They also keep us from thinking about the things that we need to think about um, and being as productive and, and also connected, right? They really rob us of connection, which I think really, um, like we feel like a sense of connection from them, but it's so fake and hollow. Uh, and there's, there's definitely a loss there. Um, so I, I think right now that's the most common one and, you know, it's not just, it's everybody like, I, I'm really worried about, you know, we, you go to restaurants and you see people now, right? Like we can finally go to a restaurant, but everybody at the table staring into a screen, it's really scary, um, and sad and, yeah. and dangerous because I do think it's sort of like. Uh, you know, they're hijacking our, our, um, our brain circuitry in ways that we're not even really sure of and sure of the long-term impact of, um, but you know, teen mental health, depression, anxiety, suicidality have been, um, correlated with the rise of the smartphone. And that's scary. That's really, really scary. Um, so, you know, I mean, yes, substance use, video gaming, like all that, like anything that just sort of sucks you in and gives you a little dopamine rush. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, those are things that those are unhealthy coping mechanisms that a lot of people reach to and understandably, right. Like I'm hurting and we live in a culture too, that really glamorizes alcohol use, right? Like, oh, you want to blow off some steam drink, right? Which is so ridiculous because actually alcohol is a depressant. So, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but we've been so conditioned and you've grown up seeing this in film and TV 
uh, it's hard to to untangle that. But yeah, so anything that gives you a little dopamine hit is is sort of often an unhealthy um, coping mechanism. You know, it's it's a fine line, right? Like sometimes binge watching a TV show is the best thing you can do, right? And there's no harm in doing that every once in a while. However, if you're binge watching television shows and that's all you're doing for days at a time and you're not getting out of bed, well, then that's another story, right? So it's, it's, it is a fine line. Um, healthy coping skills, you know, I think there are three things that you can do that are really going to impact your brain chemistry in a positive way. Um, one is getting plenty of sleep, making that a priority, eating healthy foods, making sure that you're getting like good fuels, proteins, nutrients into your body. And then the third is exercise, right? Um, you know, it's, it's not about like, um, being physically fit, it actually changes your brain chemistry. And for me, like that's how I got through this pandemic is running and working out. Right. Um, it helps so much to balance your brain chemistry. Um, so those are, those are the three top things that you can do, but really it's self-care and figuring out what feels like healthy self-care for you. Um, and sometimes it's like doing the things that are fun and, uh, you know, listening to music or connecting with friends or whatever. And sometimes it's the not fun things like doing your homework, right? That's healthy self-care, but it's a, it's a healthy coping skill too, of, of doing what you need to do to make sure that you're taken care of, because the more you take care of yourself, the more you send yourself the message that you are worth taking care of. Yeah. I love that. And I think as you were talking about the unhealthy and healthy coping mechanisms, I think you're totally right about our society really glamorizing these certain unhealthy coping mechanisms. And also I wanted to talk about, I think the unhealthy coping mechanisms can sometimes seem easier. They're immediate. You get that immediate hit of dopamine. Um, and I think it's pretty easy to just get hooked on that, like social media and that sort of feeling. Um, it's easy. Your phone's always right next to you. But I think challenging ourselves to find healthy coping mechanisms better for us in the long term and more effective. And you talked a lot about the pandemic. And I wanted to kind of, I guess, bridge the two different conversations we've been having. Um how is grief and trauma kind of connected to the pandemic? I feel like we've all kind of collectively gone through a really tough year um, as you know, a therapist and a mother. What do you see as being kind of the lasting impacts of this pandemic and the year we've gone through? I mean, I, I think it's an interesting thing that we do, myself included, where we sort of forget how traumatic it was. And this pandemic, I like the expression, like we're, we're not all in the same boat, but we are all in the same river or whatever, you know, I think people say it a bunch of different ways. Right. So there are people who experienced a lot of loss in this, um, pandemic and they experienced, you know, sometimes the loss of livelihood, the loss of life, the loss of loved ones. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of trauma that people went through, you know, having to, um, you know, people who lost a loved one who of, of not necessarily of anything COVID related, but not being able to be there in the hospital because of COVID with their loved one during this painful loss. So, you know, that in and of itself, um, you know, not being able to send your children to school is, um, 
it's a stress, right? It's, it's really overwhelming and trying to balance, you know, figure out how do you, how do you hold a job and take care of your kids and school them and, you know, keep them. It's a lot, it's a lot. So, you know, for, um, for parents, I know this was a lot, you know, but for teenagers too, like you're at a time in your life where you don't want to hang out with your parents anymore. And that's developmentally normal. You want to be out hanging out with your friends and then you can't, right? Like it's, it's really, it's a loss. Like there's grief in all of that, you know, kids losing their, um, their senior year of high school or their freshman year of high school, you know, or their graduations, all of it. Like it's, it's a lot of loss and a lot to grieve. And it's so different for so many people. So again, like this pandemic hurt everybody. And there's certain things we can all relate to, like the you know, the anxiety of maybe not so much for teenagers because you probably didn't have to go to the grocery store, but the anxiety of going to a grocery store and seeing that there's not food on the shelves, right? Um, it's really, that was traumatic or having to wear masks and figure out, you know, how far you're supposed to stand away from people and, you know, not being able to see people's faces. And there, I, there's grief in that, you know, I really thought a lot about like just the grief of not being able to smile at people at the grocery store or, you know, have that kind of social contact. Um, so the pandemic, I think it impacted everybody differently, but there's a lot of, you know, small T traumas and big T traumas in there for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, I feel like I recognize the anxiety and the isolation and loneliness, but kind of overlooked the trauma because at least for my family, we were fortunate enough to not have to you know, to not lose a family member or something like that. But that's not to say that there wasn't trauma there. It was just kind of long-term day after day. So Mm -hmm. I think that being said, because it wasn't just one event, but more or less every day adding on top of the next, I think Mm -hmm. that's sometimes overlooked or, you know, people just don't necessarily associate that with trauma when it really can be a traumatic, that buildup. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, it's, it's hard for us to all be on top of each other. I think there's a lot more, I mean, there was certainly fighting in my household. Um, I think there's a lot more tension and conflict in households because we're not supposed to be on top of each other all the time. It's not really so great for us. Like it was nice. It was fun for the first couple of weeks, but then when it set in that it wasn't just going to go away and we weren't just going to all go back to school and back to work. And we were just stuck with each other, right? Like it's, uh, you know, I don't know if you guys have siblings or what your families are like, but it's intense. It's a lot. Coming off of this tough, traumatic year filled with loss, you know, transitioning back to school into a more in-person, I guess, period of time, it feels like a lot of this is just being swept under the rug um, Mm -hmm. by society as a whole. Like, let's just move on. Like, keep on pushing forward. And it feels overwhelming and a little fast um, and invalidating. Like, whoa, we just had such a tough year. And now I'm back in school being like thrown all these in-person tests and quizzes. Like, give me a moment to process, please. Yeah, no, I'm with you. Like I went from my kids not having any activities. And now I'm like, like they're trying to have extra, extra games, extra practices to make up for like just driving around all the time. Mm -hmm. But like, it's, it is like, it's like, we got back, we, we were off of the hamster wheel for so long. And I think also the way that we all lived, we were almost overproductive. Right. And instead of taking this time and being 
reflective and thinking, gosh, do we really need to do it that same way? We just jumped right back on and started going on the whirlwind, right? And it's, it is a lot and it's a lot of adjustment. Um, and it, you know, going back to school when you've been told people are, you know, you have to wear masks and stay six feet apart is absolutely anxiety provoking. You're right. You're right. We're just like, okay, well that happened. Now everybody go back to what you were doing. Right. But mm -hmm. like, it makes sense to have some feelings and to have a reaction to what you've just been through. As you were talking about, you know, going back on the hamster wheel and just like back to the grind, part of me is like, no, like I want to, I want to do this differently. And I yeah. feel like as a society, we haven't like taken that moment. Like how do we want to proceed now that we've been through that? Yeah. Cause I'm not sure I want to proceed, you know, business as it was in 2019. Right. I feel like a completely different person with different values and a new perspective on life and family and time at home. It's like, I'm not sure I want to be racing across town all day. Um, yeah. And I think maybe just collectively, it might be necessary to just take a moment to be like, how's everyone doing? Like, what do we, right. how do we want to keep going forward with this? Absolutely. I, I do think that's healthy. And yeah, like we, we all need to digest what happened and figure out, okay, well, what wasn't working before? What do we, you know, I've heard a lot of people say, I just want to go back to the pandemic. Right. Mm -hmm. And I get what they're saying is it's like, can we just all slow down and close our doors and hide out in our homes? Right. Because it is a lot, it's a lot in the expectations, um, you know, especially where we live, right. Where there's a hustle and a bustle and like, everybody's always, you know, how are you busy? Right. Everybody's busy. Um, but you know, it's not such a bad thing to not be busy. In fact, you know, one of the things that I've really thought about, and I, I've really been exploring with a lot of my clients is just this concept of play, right. Of just allowing for more space to play and to enjoy life. Um, because that's important too. hundred percent. It's nice hearing Cooper even say that because I felt the exact same way of, I kind of wanted like an easy transition, like kind of slowly to just get a, you know, have one foot in pandemic life and one foot in like the new normal, but it's kind of, I've just been pushed into the, the way things were a year and a half ago when I thought we were all, we all kind of collectively decided that we didn't want that and that we were going to slow down and change after this period of isolation, but it doesn't seem that way. Um, I wanted to close off by talking about trauma anniversaries. Um, obviously it's been a little over a year since the pandemic started and that date that Cooper and I both went into lockdown was definitely a year from that date was definitely an emotional one. Events like these bring up a lot of difficult emotions that were kind of experienced when they initially happened. Um, and they can be really painful to reckon with. So I was wondering how you advise people to go about remembering these certain people or events, um, their, you know, the anniversary, commemorating the anniversary without being pushed to a breaking point or shutting down. I think it's, you know, with anything painful and scary, it's allowing for the pain. Right. I, I think it's counterintuitive. Sometimes we think, well, I'm afraid that I had a client once and she didn't want to cry and she never saw her mom cry. And she was terrified of that. Right. And that created so much anxiety for her when actually just crying was far less painful than the anxiety she carried around crying. 
right? Mm -hmm. So the, the not getting stuck in it, you're not going to get stuck in it. You know, it's like a river, it moves through, right? If you do get stuck in it, then, you know, then that's depression or anxiety or something that you may need some help for. But for the most part, feelings pass and it can be really overwhelming. Allowing yourself to feel it is important. Um, You know, sometimes I think we get caught up in this, like, choose to be happy, you know, positivity is a choice, but actually it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to not be okay all the time. It's okay to feel the pain of it um, with the anniversaries. It's still, it's still there. Um, you know, it, it didn't just go away. Um, it's still real and it's still a source of pain. And, um, and I think the most important thing that we need to do is feel it. Right. And, and it's also understanding like collectively as a community, it's that pain that drives us to make change. Right. So by sticking our heads in the sand and not feeling it and pretending that it's not happened, it keeps us stuck and stagnant, but it's the same thing on an individual level, right? It's the pain that really transforms us, right? We feel pain and we make shifts, we adjust, right? Like, you know, what you were saying with the pandemic, you know, it's the pain of the pandemic that we went through that, that changes who we are in some core way and, and really causes us to evolve and grow in a meaningful way. Lauren and I share a very similar sentiment. You know, the pandemic was hard emotionally, psychologically, uh, just in every way. Um, but it also really allowed us to rethink, you know, what do we want to be doing with our time? What message do we want to be putting out into the world? And I think that's what the Thrive Initiative really is, is feeling the pain of the pandemic and just sharing it, like helping people move through this time, um, as best as they can, acknowledging that pain, Mm -hmm. feeling it. I totally agree. I feel like oftentimes, you're right, especially in our country, there's this can-do attitude of like, just, you know, push through it. And, you know, like you said, positivity is a choice. And I think giving yourself the space to feel things yeah. without judgment is really powerful. Yeah, right. The depth of our pain is also the depth of our joy, right? Yeah. We're shutting down the one end, we shut down the other. So allowing for both pain and joy is important to being human and having a human experience. I just wanted to say thank you so much for sharing that anecdote. I think it what you said was so profound and so true. And, you know, I feel like a lot of the time we avoid these discussions because we're worried about saying the wrong thing or making someone feel upset or, you know, making ourselves feel upset when even if they may be uncomfortable at times or messy, or even if you have to cry in the middle of them or something like that, they are most of the time, a lot of the time necessary in, you know, creating that change, sparking awareness and, um, you know, voicing your beliefs, your opinions, things like that, because, all of those things, they can weigh down on you and really take a toll on your mental well-being. And so being able to share them and express them, I think can be really helpful. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Thrive Podcast. We'll see you soon. With love, the Thrive Initiative.